Last week I opened by telling you the story of uh, a number of folks that I had met, social entrepreneurs who were involved in uh, trying to make the world a better place for everyone. These uh, men and women in particular had started new ventures um, around uh, prisoners and trying to help uh, move drug dealers towards um, a productive service. They were trying to care for families that had high needs children and also there was a, a movement to help the infants who were suffering from rare diseases. And after sort of sharing those stories, I asked you to imagine what the world would look like if there was more of that. In particular, I said, can you imagine what the world would be like if everyone who loves God served others? If everyone who said that they were a follower of Christ actually followed Christ's example in putting the needs of others ahead of their own, and they brought their A-game to that effort, they, they were doing all that they could, giving their very best to try and make things better for others, especially for the poor. I went on to say that this is, in fact, the plan. This is God's plan, and he has not only called and commissioned us to be involved in serving others, but indeed, he has uniquely equipped us to do that. And we looked at this idea that we all have a gift or gifts, that we have some unique abilities, skills, aptitudes, strengths, talents, call it what you like. We have a, a DNA that is wired in a certain way, that, that God has given us, and we are to use those abilities and aptitudes to serve others. God has given us those gifts for us to give away. And uh, I challenged you, if you did not have a good idea what your spiritual gift or gifts were, to pursue that and gave you a handful of uh, different ways that you could do that, including some online tools. Well, today... In uh, part two, I want to uh, set a challenge before those of you who are not currently fully deployed. Uh, my goal, very clear, I'm stating it up here so you can run and hide if that's uh, the plan. My goal is that everybody who is not serving in some way, inside or outside of the walls of the church, but serving, using your gifts to, to, to care for others, that... I, I would push you across that line. And uh, I know that some of you are fully deployed. There's lots of very exciting ways that people are serving. Again, lots of ways inside sort of the, the architecture of the church, small groups, Sunday school classes, elders, deacons, working with the, the food bank. There's all kinds of ways that different people are serving here. Additionally, some of you are working at Love Inc. or at PADS or or you are, you've started organizations, or you're serving on the boards for, uh, for schools, or for uh, uh, mission agencies, or you are, uh, you are working through the prisons that we have, people going every week to teach in, in the prisons, and to, and to counsel, and to Alpha, and men's fraternity there. There's people that are, that are doing all kinds of things, very exciting. Uh, as a matter of fact, yesterday, there was a, a, a new group that has started uh, out of the church. They call themselves the Hogs, um, the Hands of God. And uh, I suggested that name may not attract any women to be involved, and so they might want to rethink that. But uh, 
they're the hands of God, and uh, there were about 20 folks that showed up yesterday morning at South School in North Chicago, and we're working on a project there, and uh, it was just great. It, it was great. Some of you are serving. You know that uh, serving can be very hard, but that it is also the right thing to do, and that it brings with it a sense of confirmation and joy and resonance that, yes, this is, this, was a, this is a good thing. I need to do more of this. And we talked last week about the fact that, that we stop growing when we stop serving. Right? That, that this, is, this is part of God's plan. And we're not going to grow closer to God. Our intimacy with Him is at some point going to be truncated if we're not serving in some way. And so today I want um, to do my best to, to push those of you who would raise your hand and say, I'm probably not doing as much as I could be or should be doing. Uh, we just want to set some opportunities uh, both through the church and outside of the church for you to take a next step. And uh, I struggled with how exactly to sort of state this case in the most effective way until I finally uh, stopped being an idiot and realized I could let Jesus do all the heavy lifting, which is the plan. So turn with me to Luke chapter 10. I want to read the parable of the Good Samaritan, which begins with verse 25. Most of you have heard of the parable of the Good Samaritan because it's so good. It is so profound. It is so, uh, it is so rich. I want us to look at it again, Luke chapter 10, verse 25, following here as I read. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, Jesus replied. How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert of the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. So... We have a man, an attorney, who sets out to test Jesus. His, his questioning is not particularly sincere. He's looking for a loophole, perhaps, or he's trying to 
to, to, to show up Jesus and make him look bad. But he asks a very important question. He asks, so what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? What do I have to do so that when I stand before God to offer an account of my life, that meeting goes well? <laughs> what can I do to find favor with God? And Jesus, as he so typically does, turns the question around and presents it in a different form to the one who's asking it. And he says, well, what does the law say? Referring to the Old Testament, the Mosaic law. And the attorney uh, answers by quoting out of Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19, essentially the great commandment, love God with everything you've got, love others. Jesus says, okay, go and do that and it'll be well. You have an answer. Why are you asking me? Now, as an aside, but an important aside, it's worth noting that there's more going on here than you might initially see. The, the answer that the man gives is a little bit misleading. Christ's response is very specific. The man says, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, great, you go do that, and, and you'll be fine. The problem is, we can't do that. Right? The problem is, we can't love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength all the time. We're not good at loving other people like we love ourselves. If you could love God perfectly your entire life and love others perfectly, then you could get into heaven on the basis of your own merits. But we can't do that, right? And so the law was given in part to help us understand that. The law is the objective standard. The law is a, is a clear line. You want to know how high you got to jump? This high. And none of us can jump that high. So, so that, that's part of what's going on. We tend to just look around and, and compare ourselves to others, um, in particular to Hitler, and we say, you know what, I'm not so bad. There's good people and there's bad people. I'm not one of the bad people. I'm, I'm a good person. Okay? The law says, uh, no, this is the standard, and we all fall short of the standard. And so uh, if, if we looked other places for the answer to this question, when the, when the, the jailer asked Paul in Acts 16, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Paul says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And what we see, the main message of the entire Bible is that Jesus is God and he is the Savior of the world and that we are saved through his work, through his goodness, not through our own. We are saved by grace, through faith, not of ourselves. It's a gift of God. Eternal life is a gift that is given to us through the work of Jesus Christ and those who line up with Christ, are given eternal life. So the answer is a little bit fuller than we, we see here. And for the record, I just want to add, we are expected to do good works. Right? I mean, if we believe, then we obey. That was, that was Bonhoeffer's line. And uh, if we go back to the passage in Ephesians 2 that I just quoted, for by grace you're saved through faith, not of ourselves, it's a gift. 
not as a result of our efforts. That goes right on to say, we were created in Christ Jesus to do good works. It is expected. Okay? So, just a little aside, there's, there's, there's some interesting dynamics going on here. The man has come to Jesus, what do I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, what do you think? He says, I've got to love God and others perfectly. Jesus says, fine, you go do that and everything will be, everything will be okay. But you add an answer, so why are you asking me? The man then comes back and he says, well, because it's not so simple. Who's my neighbor? Who, who, is, who am I expected to care for? Who, who deserves my time, my, my love, my attention? Uh, is it... Is it really, literally just the person that lives next to me? Is it everybody in the same town? Is it everybody in the next town? Is it everybody that looks like me? Who's my neighbor? And Jesus then goes on, as Jesus frequently does, to reframe the question and to tell a story. And in particular, he tells the story about a man who is going from Jerusalem down to Jericho who's beaten up and left for dead, and three different people come by and interact with him or don't. Now, you should know that uh, those hearing this story, certainly the attorney who is talking to Jesus, uh, would have made a, a couple of assumptions. First of all, the assumption would be that the man who is beaten is a Jew. This will be important later on. That's who would be in Jerusalem, headed down to Jericho. Additionally, you should know that this is... Uh, Traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho is a dangerous thing to do in the first century. Jerusalem is 2,300 feet above sea level. Jericho is 1,300 feet below sea level. And so you are heading down a steep road with lots of switchbacks back and forth. And so lots of blind corners. There's caves. Lots of places for bad guys to hide, jump out, beat somebody up. And, uh, and, as they did, leave them for dead. And if you're beaten up in the first century and left for dead, uh, things can go from very bad to death very quickly. It's, it's not the easiest place to survive. It tends to be hot. There's no water nearby. Uh, there are some wild animals and poor uh, 911 coverage in the first century. And... Um, you know, if you don't have OnStar on your donkey, then you are completely uh, left on your own. And so um, this man is beaten and left. First person that comes by is a priest who walks on the other side of the road. The next man that comes by is a Levite. The Levites, the whole tribe of Levi, uh, was, were religious workers. So we have another person who's working in the temple. And he uh, doesn't slow down. Well, maybe he slows down. Maybe we have a, uh, you know, a bit of a gaper delay, first century gaper who will look but doesn't stop and keeps moving. And then finally, uh, we have a Samaritan. The third thing you have to know to really understand this, uh, this parable is that the Jews despise the Samaritans. Uh, the Samaritans were, um, were the, the descendants of Jews and others. So they're half-breeds. They're, they're impure. Um, when the Assyrians took the northern ten tribes of Israel, 
into uh, captivity when the, uh, when the Babylonians took the southern two tribes of Judah into exile. Uh, at various times, everybody leaves. Well, whoever is just left, right, whoever wasn't in town when the raid happened that day, however it worked out, some people stayed back. Those people uh, eventually end up marrying Assyrians or Babylonians or Persians or others, and their children are Samaritans, impure. They're, they're considered heretics. They're, uh, they're traitors. They are uh, just, they're just generally considered inferior to the Jews who look down on them and despise them. Well, here comes a Samaritan, and he stops to help this Jewish man who's been beaten. And he cares for him, and he bandages him, and then he puts him on his donkey, and he takes him to an inn, and he, he then tends to him through the night. And then in the next morning, he gives the innkeeper money to say, now you care for him. I've got to go attend to some business. I will come back. And if, if it needs more money than this, I will personally pay for this man. So then Jesus asks, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? Now, please note, um, this is a slightly different question than we might have expected to be asked. When the parable begins and Jesus starts to tell the story to answer the question, who is my neighbor, you would think that the way this is going to unfold is, is an answer. Do, am, I, am I expected to care for this guy or not? Is he my neighbor or not? Right? But that's not, that's not the question Jesus is asking. He's, he's not asking the question that really is being asked, right? Do I have to care for this, this person? He's, he's asking the question, what kind of person do you want to be? And there's a big difference between that. Do I, on the one hand, we've got the, the attorney uh, asking a question, how can I limit my liability, my exposure, right, my the scope of, of care that I'm expected to be involved in. How can I limit that? Jesus doesn't answer that question. Instead, he says, who do you think acted the right way? Who was the neighbor? And the attorney, the expert in the law, replied, the one who had mercy on him. Which, just so you know, he cannot bring himself to say the Samaritan. That, that's... He's not going there, so he answers it a different way. The one who had mercy on him. Jesus says, great, go and do likewise. Now, <clears throat> let's, let's give the priest and the Levite and the attorney a little slack here. In all honesty, um, they're simply asking the questions that we would ask. But on the one hand, they're looking at this, and they're trying to figure out, um, do I want to get involved? What's going to happen to me if I do? Is this a, is this a setup? Right? Is this a scam? If I stop and slow down, am I going to get jumped? Uh, how, how much time is this going to take? Because i got I got a schedule. Right? i got places to go, people to see, things to do. I'm an important guy. I didn't, I didn't budget for caring for somebody else. How much is this going to cost me? Right? They're, they're asking a whole set of questions. 
that, that we ask. I would like to suggest that the reason they come to the wrong answer is because they've asked the wrong question. They've asked a common question, but it's not the right question. They're not asking, what kind of a person do I want to be? They're not asking, what, what's the right thing to do? They're sort of looking at this through a very different lens, and they're trying to protect themselves and their agenda and their liabilities. And they ask, consequently, the wrong question. <clears throat> I'd like to suggest that um, much of my life, I have asked the wrong question also. And it's very easy to continue to ask the wrong question. A little while ago, I was um, in uh, North Chicago. I was walking through a parking lot at uh, Taco Bell, and a man approached me who I will guess, by the way, uh, he was dressed and by his question that he was homeless or living pretty close to the bottom. And he uh, came up to me and he said, excuse me, sir, would you uh, give me 35 cents for a quesadilla? Now, I, I thought actually when he first asked this that he said, will you give me 35 cents for a case of beer? And, and I remember thinking, okay, you know, it's not often that I get uh, – the truth. Occasionally, I've had one guy say, I need money for drugs. Are you, uh, will you give me any for drugs? No. Uh, I'm just telling you the truth. That's what I'm going to use it for, but I'm telling you the truth. Yeah, I know. I get it. Uh, so I sort of thought, well, I got another honest person who's asking <clears throat> for beer money, but why is he asking for 35 cents? And then I realized, no, he's asking for 35 cents to go buy a quesadilla at Taco Bell. And I was very happy at that moment because <laughs> that's such a painless ask, right? This is easy. He just wants money. He just wants a couple dollars. I can give him five dollars and walk away and feel good about things, right? Now, that's not what this guy does. That's not what the Good Samaritan does. First of all, he saw the man and Metaphorically speaking, I would suggest that we spend a lot of time not seeing people. To some extent, it, we're just moving fast, and uh, we got all kinds of electronic gadgets going on and occupying our attention, so we, we actually don't focus on a lot that's going on around us. But then we sort of actively avoid making eye contact with people that look like they're going to need a lot of time. So the first thing we see that the Samaritan does is he, he sees. The second thing is that he takes a very risky, messy step to get involved. Okay. Just full disclosure, sometimes serving, however we're called to serve, sometimes it is fun. Other times it's not. And getting involved with people who are hurting and broken generally will take a lot of time because they're hurting and broken, and they need time. This guy gets involved. He, he doesn't just do a quick fix. It really looks like he befriends this guy. He, he, he does everything that you could ask a friend to do. 
And he doesn't just give him 35 cents, right? He really reaches out. And I would suggest that in most cases, that's what people need. Even people that need money need our friendship more than they need our money. And I would, I would also suggest on the side that those of us who have, uh, tend to have lots of money actually need their friendship more than they need our friendship. We're winning in all kinds of ways that don't ultimately matter, and we don't understand that at the time. And so uh, this guy, he befriends him. And then finally, the last thing that we see that he does is that he offers him money, which again is generally the first thing that uh, we may be inclined to do because it's so easy. I'm not suggesting that you don't give money certainly to, to, to causes and to ventures and, and to, to missions that are trying to help the poor. Giving money to people on the street who ask for money can be a little bit problematic. I haven't always worked that one out um, because they're not always going to use that money in the best way. It's the best thing, you know, what I should have done and what I have done is just to say, you know what, no, I won't give any money, but you know, let's go back into Taco Bell and order what you want and I'll pay for it. But um, I'm not saying don't give money. I'm just saying that God's call on our lives is a whole lot bigger than giving money. So, Mike, do you mean that we can't walk past anybody in need? Well, uh, I'm not a lawyer, but I understand that if you find somebody who has been beaten and you walk past them and don't do anything, that you're in trouble according to Good Samaritan laws. We are, so there's a legal answer to that question, but the question that we're really looking at is a whole lot bigger than that, and that is in a world where two billion people will go to bed tonight having tried to eke out a life on $2 a day or less, where there will be hundreds of millions of people suffering in extreme poverty. What is my responsibility? What is it that I am expected to do? Because it can be overwhelming. Well, I think the answer is uh, what you are expected to do is something. Right? I mean, it's easy to be overwhelmed and do nothing. We don't have to do everything. But we have to do something. And I think the call, sort of corporately from the New Testament, would suggest, first of all, we need an attitude of service. At home, at work, with our spouses, with our parents, with our children, with our neighbors. We just need a general disposition that says, I will serve. I am third. God is first. Others are next. I am third. I should serve. That's what I'm called to do. That's what it looks like to follow Christ. I should have the attitude and the humility, the disposition to serve. Additionally, I think we look for ways to strategically get involved. Ways that are going to leverage our gifts, our abilities, our network, our our competencies, our sphere of influence. We look for creative ways that we could make a bigger difference. And we're going to get involved, and we're going to stay involved, and we're going to make a longer-term investment of our life. 
Now, if you have a schedule, then what I'm saying is you, this is something that needs probably to be added to your schedule. The first thing can't be. Deciding you're going to be a servant wherever you see opportunities to serve, wherever you're called on, can't schedule that one. But this other thing is something that does have to be scheduled. And I say this because I hear with some frequency, I'm, I'm too busy. I, don't, I just don't have time to, to serve. And so um, I, I just want to share corporately the answer that I share privately when somebody says, I just don't have time to serve. The first thing I would say is there are some times when I say, you know what? You are serving. <laughs> you just don't, you're just not calling it that. This doesn't have to be a formal program. You are caring for your, your children and your, and your parents right now. You are running 100 miles an hour trying to, to just serve where God has you. So you are serving. Don't think it has to be a 501c3 organization that offers tax-exempt receipts for what you're doing. No, you're serving. And there are other times when I say, you know what, you, you are hurting, and you probably need to sit down for a while. And not long, because usually one of the things that will actually bring joy and health and life and energy is to get involved with other people serving them. That, that actually can, can be energy in the bank account. But there are times when I say, you know what, you're thinking about this wrong. You're, you're actually good. So don't hear this as a legalistic, burdensome kind of thing. You're fine. With other people, I say, well, you know that it's like I don't have a, a, a get-out-of-service card that I can give you, right? I mean, you understand this isn't, these aren't, rules that I've come up with, right? This is God saying that he's given you gifts and abilities and, and we're supposed to serve. So I think you got a problem. I think, maybe, uh, there's, I think maybe there's a bigger problem here that you are going to have to go after, especially because serving is not some advanced activity for mature Christians. It is a 101 kind of exercise. And we stop growing when we stop serving. So I often say, when people say, I just, I'm too busy, they say, look, you know what? I, 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 I got to tell you, I don't think you are. I got to tell you that I think you got to look at this differently. It doesn't have to be in the next six weeks. It doesn't have to be in the next six months. But you've got to get to a spot where using your gifts and abilities for something other than, than, uh, than just to make money has got to be who you are. Now, <clears throat> I want to encourage those of you who are um, sitting on the sidelines right now to take a next step. I, I want to I say to you, don't wait until you reach some spot where you think you are now uh, finally spiritually mature and you can serve. I want to say, jump in. There are lots of different first step kinds of service opportunities that are out there. One of the ones that you'll see in the lobby in just a few minutes is called Feed My Starving Children. We did this a couple years ago. 
Uh, our goal as a church is to, um, on May 19th and 20, 20th, is to pack 100,000 meals for people in extreme poverty. So we're setting out to, to raise uh, $22,000 and to have 500 volunteers who are going to volunteer for some two to three hour shift on either that Saturday or that Sunday uh, to serve. Small groups can do this, families can do this, children over the age of five can be part of this. And, and we're, it's, it's an easy, easy step, a very small first step. There are lots of, of uh, opportunities here. There's, you've got a flyer in your, in your bulletin that talks about some of the opportunities both inside and outside the walls of the church. In the lobby today, there's a bunch of people uh, who are there representing various ministries. And in that program that you have, there's stars next to those. Everyone that's got a star by it, they're out in the lobby. There are lots of different ways through Christ Church, outside of Christ Church, that you can serve. And I just want to say to you, it will make a difference. Everybody wins if you use your gifts, especially you. The question isn't how do we limit what we do. The first question is how do we use what we've been given. You don't want to walk on the other side of the street. You want to be the person that would stop and would do what you can. That's what we're called to. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gifts that you have given to us collectively and the opportunity that you give us to be part of something that really matters. I pray that we can lean increasingly more into those gifts, that your church will be who you've called us to be, that we would be a, a, a force for good for others, especially the, the poor and the broken, that we, would, uh, that we would not simply proclaim the good news of eternal life through Christ. We would engage in good works to your glory. Guide and direct each of us to that end. Help us to see what the next step for us is. We pray this in Christ's name.